For those of you that are just joining us, um, last uh, two studies, we were looking at the Word of God, and the reason we did that uh, is because our source of divine wisdom is found in the Scriptures. And uh, we're looking to the Bible as the authoritative uh, truth that God gives us to live life successfully. As um, he says to Joshua in Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, uh, but you shall be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Uh, you will meditate upon his principles day and night, for then... You will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. And so that's the reason that we began with an understanding of what is the Bible, and is it inspired and true. Now, uh, I've asked you to turn in questions that you might have, and uh, I got one last week, and then as the week went along. I got some more in the email, and I was handed uh, four or five this morning. There are still blank cards on the back, and we invite you to take one and uh, put down any question you want to ask. Uh, maybe next week we'll read some sample questions uh, that Carrie studied with the young people about eight years ago. But... Um, there's nothing out of bounds. There's nothing off limits. Whatever uh, you have been wondering about, whatever your questions are, uh, we'll tackle them. Maybe with fear and trepidation, but we'll tackle them. <laughs> and this morning, the, the question that was asked is, what does the Bible say about what the CNMA calls the deeper life. Now, this is an interesting question because it does not ask uh, what the Bible says about the deeper life. What it asks is, what does the Bible say about what the Christian and Missionary Alliance says about the deeper life? Um, what, what does the Alliance teach? Uh, is it right? Is it wrong? Is it biblical or not? And so uh, anytime you run into a question like this, you have to break it down into its component parts. Uh, and you have to look at it. And I saw two parts to this. The first one is, what does the CNMA call the deeper life? What, what is that? Uh, and, and why does the CMA uh, use that terminology? And then secondly, how does the Bible address this interpretation of Scripture? So, what does the CMA call it? And uh, what does the Bible have to say about this doctrine that the CMA uh, espouses? And anytime you run into a question like this, it's, it's kind of interesting. Remember, my goal is to have you learn how to do this for yourself. 
And so the examples that we use each Sunday are to be uh, teaching objects so that you can learn how to apply it. And, and one of the problems with a question like this is if you go to your concordance, how many of you know what a concordance is? Uh, it's that uh, you have a Bible that has one in the back of it. It's my iPhone. Yeah, <laughs> if, you, if you have a, an iPhone... It's, uh, you just type in the word and you search through the Bible, but if uh, you have those pages in the back that have a bunch of words listed alphabetically, um, what that refers to is verses in the Bible that have that word in them. Well, you're going to have a problem with deeper life, because it doesn't occur anywhere in Scripture. That phrase, deeper life, does not ever occur in Scripture. So... We're already stuck. <laughs> we want to know what the Bible says, but the Bible doesn't say anything that uses the phrase deeper life. So, where do we start with a question like this? Well, remember the first part of the question? What does the CNMA mean by the term deeper life? And we can look up the CMA website and we can find what it teaches about deeper life. And, or, as I did, you can look up Wikipedia. Believe it or not, Wiki has all kinds of information about the deeper life. And it's not bad. It's actually pretty much on target because people write the definitions that are on Wikipedia and many of them have written about the deeper life. And so you get all kinds of uh, strings of teaching, and so I looked up in Wikipedia, what does the Christian and Missionary Alliance teach about the deeper life? And that's where I started. And that led me to all kinds of references that gave me information with which to begin my study going back to Scripture. So, what what does the CNMA teach? All right. <laughs> I was just looking at my concordance. It, go, or, uh, it goes from deed, deeds and then deer. So deeper life is definitely not in the back of my Bible either. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, what does the CNMA actually say about the deeper life? And the deeper life actually, uh, from the CNMA's website, this is what it says. Quote, The higher life or the deeper life was the passion of a great work of God in Europe and in the U.S. during the 19th century. So the move of God in the 19th century in Europe and the U.S. And this hunger for God was much broader than the CNMA, but the CNMA was born in its fire and in our time is one of its most foremost proponents. It was the Keswick Bible Conventions in England that gave the movement it's global voice, and that's what the website actually says about the CNMA, uh, from the CNMA about the deeper life. Now, I always tell the kids, I always tell my kids the same thing, like, use the Bible, because sometimes I say things that are not true. I know that seems weird, but test it, right? So that's what we're looking at, heading in a direction to test about this teaching about the deeper life in the CNMA. Is it from the scriptures? So, when you look at the CNMA website, you find that even there, the term deeper life is not often used. 
If you go back in time to the early days and probably up until 1970 or so, uh, you do find teaching on the deeper life. But we've discovered, and I, I say we collectively, the Christian Missionary Alliance has discovered that uh, a lot of people don't understand the term. Uh, they're not sure what it means. They confuse it with other things. And so uh, they have begun to use the term uh, sanctification uh, in its specific application to the development of the spiritual life that begins to look like Jesus Christ. And so uh, if you look at the CMA website, the teaching on the deeper life is actually found under the subject heading sanctification as a doctrinal position. And if you look at Wiki and some of these others, they'll direct you. You'll end up there. Um, by the way, for those of you that have looked at the CNMA website, uh, the search engine for that website is about the most obtuse thing I've ever seen. I can never find what I want. I always have to go somewhere else and get back to it because I, I don't know why they did that, but it's just very difficult to follow. But uh, you will eventually get to the subject heading, sanctification. And, and, and let me just take a, a, a moment and talk about the different aspects of sanctification. Okay, There's what we call initial sanctification. Sanctification means to be set apart unto God and made holy. A lot of people stop with the first part, to be set apart unto God. Every person who comes to faith in Jesus Christ is sanctified. That is, they are set apart unto God. They become a part of His family. They are among now the royal priesthood, the holy nation. They're set apart to God. But then there is the progress of growing into Christ-likeness, which begins with conversion. And it begins to move through day by day, year by year, uh, as the Holy Spirit works in our heart. His desire is to bring us to a crisis of sanctification, a crisis moment, where we realize... We can't do this by ourselves. We need help. We need His power. And in that crisis, which we're going to talk about in just a moment, in that crisis we give total surrender to the Holy Spirit and our progress is rapidly accelerated. And then finally the day comes when we see Jesus face to face. And we are ultimately and thoroughly sanctified. We are His and we are holy uh, because that is our ultimate destiny. So, uh, Carrie, what does the CNMA talk about sanctification? So I'm going to give some uh, summary points and you can go to the website and read. They have positional papers on there on doctrine. But here's four points specifically about the teaching uh, of the CNMA on sanctification. Number one, that the New Testament scriptures actually teach that there's two types of Christians. 
spiritual ones and carnal or worldly Christians, okay? Number two, the crucial difference between the two is wrapped up in a life that is spirit-filled and spirit-controlled versus a life that's effort that's driven through self-effort and a lack of holiness, a failure of holiness in the life. Point number three, uh, it's primarily a personal choice. Spirit-filled living or self-dependence in following God is, per, is largely a personal choice. And then fourth, a small percentage of modern Christians understand or live in the deeper life. The majority fail to enter the spirit-filled life due to ignorance, fear, or a lack of desire. Those are the four bullets, okay, that the New Testament teaches that we have spiritual Christians and carnal Christians. The difference is whether we're filled with the Spirit or we're not, which is primarily a personal choice, and that it's a small group of individuals that actually live in a Spirit-filled life due to ignorance, sin, fear, or a lack of desire. As I am listening to Carrie talk about this, um, it, it occurs to me along the way that there are some other points we should perhaps touch on. Uh, we're talking about a spirit-filled life, and the question that may pop into your mind is, well, isn't every Christian spirit-filled? I mean, don't we receive the Holy Spirit when we believe? And the answer to that is, yes, we do. We receive the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit the moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ. He comes to live inside of us by His Spirit. However, there is a difference in being indwelt by the Spirit and being filled by the Spirit. Now, the second mistake we make in this kind of thinking is we think of being filled kind of like this water bottle. You'll notice it's only a little more than half full at the moment. But if we were to fill it all the way to the top and put the cap on, we would think of that as being filled. But that's not what the Bible's talking about when it says, be filled with the Spirit. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 5, Don't be drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, and, and glorifying and exalting Him. And so, the actual experience of fullness is like drunkenness. Ooh, did I say that? Well, yes, I did. And what does that mean? When you are filled with alcohol, none of you are, right? But, but when you're filled with alcohol, uh, what do you call that? If the, if the officer stops you, because you've been weaving all over the road, uh, how do they write that ticket up? Under the influence, yes. They don't mean that you've literally tanked your body up with alcohol and it's now running out your ears. What they mean is that you're under the influence or control of alcohol. And that's what Paul means when he says, be filled with the Spirit. 
he means to be under the influence or control of the Holy Spirit. So it is true that as soon as you become a believer, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. You're indwelt. But to be permeated by the Spirit, to be under the control of the Spirit, to be under His influence, well, that's another story. Now, I'm going to venture into one of those quotes, and, and somebody's going to fix me because I'll get it wrong. I've been, I've been batting a thousand lately. But um, I, I think it was uh, Abraham Lincoln, I think, who said, you're about as happy as you want to be. And I think Tozer took that and reapplied it by saying, you're about as holy as you want to be. Um, that's quite an indictment, isn't it? Because holiness is only possible with the filling of the Holy Spirit, and that's why we say it's a choice. You're only about as holy as you want to be. It's a choice that uh, you need to make. Now, the real question that we need to ask is, what does the Bible teach, or does the Bible teach and support this doctrine? Now, I grew up a Southern Baptist, and in my college years, I began to migrate uh, toward the Christian Missionary Alliance. And s some people um, think that the Alliance believes certain things, and that's what makes them Alliance. But what makes me Christian and Missionary Alliance is that I believe the Scriptures. And I think they're most closely aligned with CNMA doctrine. I think that's a very important thing to, to, to note and to make a distinction of. Because it doesn't matter what the CNMA teaches if it isn't biblical. It makes no difference. It only matters if it is biblical. And I think part of the goal of becoming a, a member of any church and denomination is, does that body teach and proclaim the truth as closely to Scripture as I can find. And so, my first simple answer to the question, what does the CNMA teach about the deeper life and how does the Bible fit into that, is the doctrine we've been talking about is taught in the scriptures. And it was born into the Christian Missionary Alliance at the turn of the last century as a number of groups of people began to seek all the fullness of God. It was the thing that led toward the great revival of 1904 that occurred in most of the English-speaking world. And it was the birthing ground for the Christian and Missionary Alliance, not 
that we built a movement and taught this peculiar doctrine, but that we discovered this precious teaching and like-minded people gathered together and formed a movement. And, uh, and, and so that's how the beginning of the doctrine of the deeper life came into the Christian and Missionary Alliance. I've used a Latin term in the next sentence, locus classicus. It's a good word for you to learn uh, if you don't know it. Uh, it means the classical location that there is usually, and this can apply to a lot of different subjects, but when we're speaking of the scriptures, there is usually one place in the Bible where a particular doctrine is most clearly taught. There may be many other verses and passages that align closely with it, but there's one place that's like the end-all, be-all, where it is most clearly explained. And the locus classicus of the deeper life is found in Romans 6, 7, and 8. Even though the phrase is never used in those three chapters, the message is what we mean by the term. So when you look at Romans 6, 7, and 8, you find the, the teaching of the Scriptures about the deeper life. So we're going to look at those this morning. Uh, first of all, Romans chapter 6. All right. I was in Oklahoma City in 1994, and... Uh, I was down there for six, seven months for a training class. I saw this guy walking across the parking lot at the apartment where we were staying. He had a Bible. And I was like, oh, I need to go talk to him. He's got a Bible. And uh, so I go to talk to him. And he's like, well, where do you go to church? And I started to explain the CNMA. You know, I was like, Christian Missionary Alliance, A.B. Simpson. You know, I go into this whole history thing. And I'm like, it was founded like here and there. And, you know, these are some of the things. And he's like, well, that's funny because the church that I go to was founded by Jesus 2,000 years ago. <laughs> and I was like, all right, you got me on that one. <laughs> I'll never forget that. But the reality of it is, is the truth. The truth is the truth. And during that season when I was down there, I was also challenged um, to actually memorize Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. And the speaker actually said... Um, you know, don't just memorize one or two verses. Memorize all four chapters, and it will be life transformational. And um, and it it has been actually. I can't I can't express enough the criticality of taking God's word in, memorizing it. And these passages are so central to uh, life in Christ, and they're so rich in so many different ways, as you know. So as we explore deeper life. We're going to take the Bible and say, is this, this is what we believe that it looks like. So Romans chapter 6, point number 1. We have died to sin, and it no longer has any power over us. Actually, when you take that phrase, it's like, is, can that even be true? In fact, many times, I'm, I often wonder if we are weak in faith in trusting in everything that Christ did on the cross... 
by succumbing to the idea that we are not free. We are not free. We sang that song, Marvelous Light, you know, where it says, um, sin has lost its power and death has lost its sting because of what Christ has done. Because he has died and because he has been raised again, something transformational is offered to the world. And not just to the world, but to individuals in the world that have an encounter with him. And Romans 6 talks about this. We have died to sin, and it no longer has power over us. So I'm going to uh, go through a couple scripture passages and actually clip out or stress a couple things. Know that there's so many rich things here that we don't have time to go into, but we're going to form the basis of it. Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? But by no means. Why? Because we have died to sin. So that we had a relationship with sin, we were married to it, and now we have died. And he goes on to say, again, in Romans 6, 6 and 7, For we know that our old self was crucified with Jesus so that the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. So now we actually pulls out this idea that not only were we bound to sin, kind of like in a marital relationship, but we were also enslaved by it, which Jesus also taught when he, in, in John chapter 8 when he said that he who commits sin is what? A slave to sin. But he who the Son sets free, he actually said this before he went through his passion, will be free indeed. The Holy Spirit, through Paul, is talking about that right now. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. This is a freedom that Christ brings because anyone, and here it is, who has died has been freed from sin. We're no longer married to it. We are no longer connected to it. Why? Because we have died. And then in Romans 6, verses 11 through 15, he begins to repeat it again uh, the, the same way. And this has to do with the entrance point of into this idea of being in the deeper life. In the same way, this is the Holy Spirit speaking to the church, count yourselves to be what? Dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, again, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. I say if you get a command like that, it's because it's possible. It's possible. That's, what, that's why he says that. That you should obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God. Here we go. We're entering into this relationship. You had a relationship with sin. Now through Christ you have a relationship with God. No longer in the intimacy of that relationship with sin but moving forward into the intimacy of your relationship with God as those who have been, and here it is, brought from death to life. I once was fatherless, but now I have a father. I once was dead, but now I am alive. I once was blind and deaf and lame, and he healed me. He cleansed me of my leprosy, the sin that was in me. He brought us from death to life, and he wants us now to offer the parts of our body to him as instruments of right, righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. So that's the central theme here, that we have died to sin, 
and it no longer has power over us. We've died to sin. He who has died from sin, you are dead to sin. Do not let sin reign. Do not offer yourself to sin because you are alive. From death to life, Christ has taken us. And then when you move to Romans chapter 7, you find that there are two themes in Romans 7, two topics that Paul addresses. The first one has to do with the law. So, as Carrie explained, we have died to sin. It doesn't have power in our lives anymore. That doesn't mean we can't give it power. No. We can. We can yield to sin. That's why Paul says, stop yielding to sin. Give yourselves over to God as instruments of righteousness. Well, we have also died to the law. And and that's how he begins chapter 7. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. So we were born in sin. God gave the law to show us the pattern of holiness. And the law had authority over us. We had to live up to the law in order to uh, please God. Now, God was up to something. And uh, he didn't explain that fully in the Old Testament. But he had a purpose. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he's living. But if he dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. So in other words, in a marriage relationship, till death do us part, if one spouse dies, the other one is free from that covenant. Death interrupts the covenant. The same is true with the law. The whole uh, law that's expressed in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all of the commandments, all of those things that said, you will do this or you will die. Now the scripture says, we did die in Jesus to that law. So we're no longer under the law. We're free from it. Amen. And the second topic that Paul touches on in Romans 7 is the experience that a Christian has when they try to live the Christian life in their own strength and power. Now, I always know whether someone understands the deeper life, when I'm reading a commentary and they say, we don't know when this occurred in Paul's life. We don't know if this was before Christ or we don't know, we don't know what Paul's experience was. Uh, I grew up in a home where um, I was taught that this was the normal Christian life. In the idea that I will try and try and try all my life to be a good Christian, but I will always fail. And until I get to heaven, 
I will not experience release from that battle. That's what Paul says as he moves toward the second half of Romans 7. He says in verse 15, For what I am doing, I do not understand. Do you ever feel like that? (laughs) For I'm not practicing what I'd like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. Do you you ever experience that? I'm doing the thing I hate. But if I do the thing I hate, I don't want to do, I agree with the law that it's good. Do you see the point there? I hate what I'm doing. And the reason I hate it is because I agree that the law is good and I'm not keeping it. And I don't like that. Now, does that sound like an unbeliever to you? That sounds to me like a Christian who's struggling with sin and losing. They're not winning this battle. They're frustrated. And then he goes on to say, So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Because the will is present, but the doing of the good is not. For the good I want, I don't do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. (laughs) He says, I'm a mess. Everything I want to do, I find myself failing at. And everything I hate, I find myself doing all the time. Who's going to fix me? I'm broken. And he says, if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, it's no longer I who's doing it, but sin dwells in me. I then find a principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, in my heart of hearts. I say, yes, Lord, I agree with you. I'm totally sold out to you. But... In his life, he is a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in his members. And he asked this plaintive question. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ah, there's hope. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. Inside of me, that's what I want. But on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin, who is going to help me? And in chapter 8, he answers the question. So number four, if we walk by the Holy Spirit, we will live like Jesus in victory over sin. Romans 8 is absolutely essential, and there's so many critical promises that are in this chapter that are phenomenal in bringing us out of the darkness and into a spirit-filled, spirit-controlled, crazy, off-the-hook surfing life. I have this I have this desire, like one of one of my desires is I want to be a kite surfer. 
and uh, it's on my bucket list. So I have power kites. They're awesome. And uh, I have a kite. It's, uh, it's nine meters. And uh, Reg got it for me. We had to sign a waiver to order that kite, man. We had to sign a waiver to get that kite. It's, it's backpack. It's gigantic. I wear it on my back. And the first time I actually took it out, I sat on the ground. It has handles, and it has these straps that go onto your arms, you know, so that if, uh, if things get crazy, you let go of the handles, and it's supposed to dump the air out of the kite. And uh, I still remember the first time trying to fly this thing. I was sitting on the ground, and the kite was just on the ground. It's, it's, it's longer than, almost longer than this uh, front row of chairs. And it's like a giant parachute, you know? And I'm like holding it back, and uh, I'm like, Reg, I'm, I'm afraid. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually afraid to actually take this off there. But if you're out on the ocean and you have this thing strapped to your feet, man, I'd be like, woo, 10 feet in the air, let's jump, right? So the reason why I love flying kites like that, uh, and it's crazy, man. Every time we get that thing out, we get crowds of people. Uh, I've seen people like literally get pulled 10 feet in the air. The thing is dangerous, by the way. Uh, Sam, Sam actually got dragged like what, like 100 yards on the ground. She was just like, I can't look. And, and the thing is, when, when, you, when it comes under power, you don't want to release it. What you want to do is you want to keep control. You want to keep control. And so what you do is you pull on the kite which makes matters worse, actually. It, it actually empowers the guy, and you start flying. Now, if, you, if you're not catching it, this is all about spiritual reality. It's all about spiritual reality because the kite is catching the wind of the spirit, and I'm losing control, and the kite is taking control. And so I like flying kites because of its symbology. And, and I tell you what, I actually think we love doing this stuff because it's teaching us something about God. And Romans 8 is doing something just like that. If we walk by the Holy Spirit, we're going to get filled with Him and we're going to live in a different way. So Paul says, therefore, there is now no condemnation. There is none for those who are in Christ. Because through Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life, and here it is, has set you and me free. We are no longer married to sin. We're, we're no longer on the slave market. The chains have been broken. We're out in the wilderness. And we're free to enjoy what God has made. He set us free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did when he sent his son in the likeness of sinful man to be in a sin offering, and Jesus condemned sin on that cross. He killed it. He killed its ability to control his followers in the cross and then also in, his, in the resurrection in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. When I'm talking to the kids about this, I, I like to use this illustration that there's an alien invasion happening, but that's not really true. It's actually a coming home. It's a coming home. There was a time in the beginning when I believe Adam and Eve walked in the Spirit, lived in the Spirit, communed in the Spirit, and sin broke that ability to know him in his fullness. The Holy Spirit was there in the Old Testament. Sometimes he would arrive and people would prophesy. It didn't even happen with Saul. And then the next thing you know, he's making a bad choice and the Spirit's like, pew, I'm gone. He's out of there. But now in Christ, 
We have him forever. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, actually, is Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. I have it wrote on the front of my Bible. It says this, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. So when you sum up all the law and the prophets, Jesus did that. He said what? When you sum it all up, what, is this, what, is, what, what do all the laws, the Ten Commandments, all the commands in the Old Testament, when you sum it all up, what's the greatest commandment? All the law and the prophets. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and then to love people around you as much as you love yourself. And I'm saying that sin broke my ability to do that. Sin shackled me to hate him, who I am supposed to love. Sin shackled me and married me in a covenant relationship to judge other people unrighteously and to bring about hatred towards others. We still have this going on. You don't have to look very far in the news to actually see that happening. And yet, in the book of Deuteronomy, it says that the Lord your God will change your heart so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul that you may live. Here's the crazy part. The crazy part about all of this is that the deeper life is actually the Lord fulfilling a promise to you and to me that we could not do something where we have to actually come under control and not relinquish the the handles on the kite, but let the Holy Spirit have his full rule and reign and come under the complete influence of him. By the way, we're not very good at this at all times. But we're climbing, I love these pictures, we're climbing Jacob's ladder. We're climbing it. We're in an upward trajectory of actually allowing his spirit to control us more and more. And you know what it looks like? It looks like joy. And, and all of the fruit of the spirit that's listed in Galatians. And in its summary, the deeper life looks like me being free to now love my creator in all of the fullness of Jesus's, the Son's love for the Father, and the Father's love for the Son, and crazily enough then, to love people with the same love. And we don't always get that right all the time, even as Christians, actually. Sometimes we can be very judgmental, which leads me to think that sometimes maybe the CNMA position that we aren't walking in the deeper life, because I would say, based upon the scriptures, it looks like love. It looks like loving God and then loving those around us. And notice the last verse that we read, verse 4 of Romans 8. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us Mm -hmm. who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. What's that mean? That means that if you are willing to let the Holy Spirit have absolute control of your life, you turn it over to Him, and you let Him fill your sail, and and, and you let Him control you, He will live through you all the requirements of the law. And, 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 you know, this is something that's kind of exciting. How, how would you like it if I said to you this morning, you want to be a spiritual Christian, you need to memorize the whole Old Testament. <laughs> it's 
seriously? Here's the good news. I'm not advocating you don't read your Bible, but when the Holy Spirit is in control of your life, He will automatically show you what is right and what is wrong by His inward direction. He will teach you. You know, you'll, you'll be about to say something and, and you'll, you'll get this little niggle inside that says, uh-uh, don't say that. Or you'll be sitting there one afternoon minding your own business and you get this nudge. Your neighbor's been sick. You need to fix dinner for them and take it to them. He'll just guide you. So that your whole life becomes a spirit-filled life, a sweet aroma to God. Yeah. And the things you shouldn't do, He will check you. And the things you ought to do, He will prompt you. And sometimes we say, you know what, God? I don't want to. That's true. But listen, if you're filled with the Spirit... You say, yes, Lord, but I don't have the power. And He gives the power. He gives the ability. He gives you the grace so that you can do that. I, I, I want to wrap up. Uh, we've kind of gone back to usual, haven't Sorry. we? <laughs> I want to wrap up by giving you a definition for sin. Actually, I'm going to give you two definitions. Because this is important and I can't let you go out of here without it. We've been talking about free from sin, okay? And, and some of you are thinking, these guys are talking pie in the sky, man. They, they got no clue. They're just being theological, okay? Wesley said an interesting thing as he defined sin. John Wesley, the revivalist, said, sin is... Deliberate disobedience against the known law of God. So in other words, you know what God wants, and you choose to do the opposite. John Calvin said, sin is any lack of conformity to or transgression of the absolute moral perfection of God. Now, I want to ask you a question. When we're talking this morning about being free from sin, do you think we're saying to you, when you go out of this building this morning, don't ever again deviate from the absolute moral perfection of God in any way, intentionally or otherwise, or you're going to be sinning something awful? Or do you think we're saying, when you go out of this building this morning, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can do what's right and wrong as far as you know today? I did an in-depth study on that when I was in college to try to sort that out. And here's what I learned. 
when sin is used as a verb, it fits Wesley's definition. When it's used as a noun, it fits Calvin's definition. If anyone says, I have no sin, he's a liar and the truth isn't any. And if you, and that's a noun. And if you say, I'm perfect like God is perfect, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. But when Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. He was not mocking her. He was telling her the truth. You don't have to do this. Stop it. When he said to the man at the pool, you remember? Yes. And he healed him and he said to him, go and sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Now, how discouraging would it be if Jesus meant go and from this day forward, never deviate from the absolute moral perfection of the infinite God. Just drown me, throw me back in the pool and just drown me now. I can't do that. But if he meant go and do not do what you know is wrong, stop it. That is possible. And friend, that's the power that God gives in the Holy Spirit to walk in victory over sin. And you will grow in Him. And next week you'll learn something you didn't know today was wrong. You'll learn something new. And you'll be a little more like Jesus when you do. And time after time, you'll grow in Christ-likeness. Do you believe this morning that you can live without doing what you know is wrong? Do you believe that you can live and always do what the Holy Spirit guides you to do? You can. The ones who walk in the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That can be true of you in the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, we've gone a little longer than we needed to this morning. Well, I won't say that. We've gone a little longer. We needed to this morning. (laughs) But uh, I'm going to ask Vince if he will come and lead us uh, in our benediction, brother.